Chapter 2 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tyrell Sorensen. Chapter 2 The Lake of Juan, Aklat, Tartar Tombs, Ancient Remains, A Dervish, A Friend, The Mudir, Armenian Remains, An Armenian Convent and Bishop, Journey to Bitlis. Nimrod Daug, Bitlis, Journey to Kurzan, Yazidi Village. The first view the traveler obtains of the Lake of Juan on descending towards it from the hills above Aklat is singularly beautiful. This great inland sea of the deepest blue is bounded to the east by ranges of serrated snow-capped mountains peering one above the other and springing here and there into the highest peaks of Tiari and Kurdistan. Beneath them lies the sacred island of Akhtamar, just visible in the distance, like a dark shadow on the water. At the further end rises the one sublime cone of the Subhan, and along the lower part of the eastern shores stretches the Nimrod Dog, varied in shape and rich in local traditions. At our feet, as we drew nigh to the lake, were the gardens of the ancient city of Aklat, leaning minarets and pointed mausoleums peeping above the trees. We rode through the vast burying grounds, a perfect forest of upright stones seven or eight feet high of the richest red color, most delicately and tastefully carved with arabesque ornaments and inscriptions in the massive character of the early Mussulman age. In the midst of them rose here and there a conical turba of beautiful shape, covered with exquisite tracery. The monuments of the dead still stand and have become the monuments of a city, itself long crumbled into dust. Amidst orchids and gardens are scattered here and there low houses rudely built out of the remains of the earlier habitations, and fragments of cornice and sculpture are piled up into the walls around the cultivated plots. Beyond the turba, said to be that of Sultan Bandur, through a deep ravine such as I have already described, runs a bawling stream, crossed by an old bridge. Orchids and gardens make the bottom of the narrow valley and the cultivated ledges, as seen from above, a bed of foliage. The lofty perpendicular rocks rising on both sides are literally honeycombed with entrances to artificial caves, ancient tombs, or dwelling places. On a high, isolated mass of sandstone stand the walls and towers of a castle, the remains of the ancient city of Kelath, celebrated in Armenian history and one of the seats of Armenian power. I descended to the crumbling ruins and examined the excavations in the rocks. The latter are now used as habitations and as stables for herds and flocks. Many of the tombs are approached by flights of steps, also cut in the rock. An entrance, generally square, unless subsequently widened and either perfectly plain or decorated with a simple cornice, opens into a spacious chamber, which frequently leads into others on the same level or by narrow flights of steps into upper rooms. There are no traces of the means by which these entrances were closed. They probably were so by stones, turning on rude hinges or rolling on rollers. Leaving the valley and winding through a forest of fruit trees, here and there interspersed with a few primitive dwellings, I came to the old Turkish castle, standing on the very edge of the lake. It is a pure Ottoman edifice, less ancient than the turbas, or the old walls towering above the ravine. Inscriptions over the gateways state that it was partly built by Sultan Salim and partly by Sultan Suleiman, and over the northern entrance occurs the date of 975 of the Hijira. In the fort there dwelt, until very recently, a notorious Kurdish freebooter of the name of Mohammed Bey, who, secure in his stronghold, ravaged the surrounding country and sorely vexed its Christian inhabitants. He fled on the approach of the Turkish troops after their successful expedition against Nur Ula Bey and is supposed to be wandering in the mountains of southern Kurdistan. The ancient city of Kelath was the capital of the Armenian province of Pesnauni. It came under the Mohammedan power as early as the 9th century, but was conquered by the Greeks of the Lower Empire at the end of the 10th. The Seljuks took it from them, 
and it then again became a Mussulman principality. It was long a place of contention for the early Arab and Tartar conquerors. Shah Arman reduced it towards the end of the 12th century. It was besieged without result by the celebrated Salah ad-Din, and was finally captured by his nephew, the son of Malik Adil, in A.D. 1207. The sun was setting as I returned to the tents. The whole scene was lighted up with its golden tints, and Claude never composed a subject more beautiful than was here furnished by nature herself. I was seated outside my tent, gazing listlessly on the scene, when I was roused by a well-remembered cry, but one which I had not heard for years. I turned about and saw standing before me a Persian dervish, clothed in a fawn-colored gazelle skin, and wearing the conical red cap, edged with fur, and embroidered in black braid with verses from the Quran and invocations to Ali, the patron of his sect. He was no less surprised than I had been at his greeting when I gave him the answer peculiar to men of his order. He was my devoted friend and servant from that moment, and sent his boy to fetch a dish of pears, for which he actually refused a present ten times their value. Whilst we were seated chatting in the soft moonlight, Humuzd was suddenly embraced by a young man resplendent with silk and gold embroidery, and armed to the teeth. He was a chief from the district of Mosul, and well known to us. Hearing of our arrival, he had hastened from his village at some distance to welcome us, and to endeavor to persuade me to move the encampment and partake of his hospitality. Failing, of course, in prevailing upon me to change my quarters for the night, he sent his servant to his wife, who was a lady of Mosul, and formerly a friend of my companions, for a sheep. We found ourselves thus unexpectedly amongst friends. Our circle was further increased by Christians and Muslims of Aklat, and the night was far spent before we retired to rest. In the morning, soon after sunrise, I renewed my wanderings amongst the ruins, first calling upon the mudir, or governor, who received me seated under his own fig tree. He was an old greybeard, a native of the place, and of a straightforward, honest bearing. I had to listen to the usual complaints of poverty and overtaxation, although, after all, the village with its extensive gardens only contributed yearly ten purses, or less than forty-five pounds, to the public revenue. This sum seemed small enough, but without trade, and distant from any high road, there is not a para of ready money, according to the mudir, in the place. From the mudir's house, I rode to the more ancient part of the city, and to the rock tombs. I entered many of these, and found all of them to be of the same character, though varying in size. Amongst them there are galleries and passages in the cliffs without apparent use, and flights of steps, cut out of the rock, which seem to lead nowhere. I searched and inquired in vain for inscriptions and remains of sculpture, and yet the places of undoubted antiquity and in the immediate vicinity of contemporary sites where cuneiform inscriptions do exist. During my wanderings, I entered an Armenian church and convent standing on the ledge of rock overhanging the stream, about four miles up the southern ravine. The convent was tenanted by a bishop and two priests. They dwelt in a small low room, scarcely lighted by a hole carefully blocked up with a sheet of oiled paper to shut out the cold. Dark, musty, and damp, a very parish clerk in England would have shuddered at the sight of such a residence. Their bed, a carpet worn to threads, spread on the rotten boards. Their diet, the coarsest sandy bread and a little sour curds with beans and mangy meat for a jubilee. A miserable old woman sat in a kind of vault under the staircase preparing their food and passing her days in pushing to and fro with her skinny hands the goat skin containing the milk to be shaken into butter. She was the housekeeper and handmaiden of the Episcopal establishment. The church was somewhat higher, though even darker than the dwelling room, and was partly used to store a heap of moldy corn and some primitive agricultural implements. The whole was well and strongly built, and had the evident marks of antiquity. The bishop showed me a rude cross carved on a rock outside the convent, which, he declared, had been cut by one of the disciples of the Saviour himself. It is, at any rate, considered a relic of very great sanctity, and is an object of pilgrimage for the surrounding Christian population. 
On my return to our encampment, the tents were struck, and the caravan had already begun its march. Time would not permit me to delay, and with a deep longing to linger on this favored spot, I slowly followed the road leading along the margin of the lake to Bitlis. I've seldom seen a fairer scene, one richer in natural beauties. The artist and the lover of nature may equally find at Aklat objects of study and delight. The architect, or the traveler, interested in the history of that graceful and highly original branch of art, which attained its full perfection under the Arab rulers of Egypt and Spain, should extend his journey to the remains of ancient Armenian cities, far from high roads and mostly unexplored. He would then trace how that architecture, deriving its name from Byzantium, had taken the same development in the east as it did in the west, and how its subsequent combination with the elaborate decoration, the varied outline, and tasteful coloring of Persia had produced the style termed Saracenic, Arabic, and Moresque. He would discover, almost daily, details, ornaments, and forms, recalling to his mind the various orders of architecture, which, at an early period, succeeded to each other in Western Europe and in England, modifications of style for which we are mainly indebted to the East during its close union with the West by bond of Christianity. The Crusaders, too, brought back into Christendom, on their return from Asia, a taste for that rich and harmonious union of color and architecture which had already been so successfully introduced by the Arabs into the countries they had conquered. Our road skirted the foot of the Nimrod Dog, which stretches from Aklat to the southern extremity of the lake. We crossed several dikes of lava and scoria, with wide mud torrents now dry, the outpourings of a volcano long since extinct. Our road gradually led away from the lake. With Kawal Yusuf and my companions, I left the caravan far behind. The night came on, and we were shrouded in darkness. We sought in vain for the village which was to afford us a resting place, and soon lost our uncertain track. The Kowal took the opportunity of relating tales collected during former journeys on this spot of robber Kurds and murdered travelers, which did not tend to remove the anxiety felt by some of my party. At length, after wandering to and fro for about an hour, we heard the distant jingle of the caravan bells. We rode in the direction of the welcome sound, and soon found ourselves at the Armenian village of Keswak, standing in a small bay and sheltered by a rocky promontory jutting boldly into the lake. Next morning we rode along the margin of the lake, still crossing the spurs of the Nimrod Dog, furrowed by numerous streams of lava and mud. In one of the deep gullies, opening from the mountain to the water's edge, are a number of isolated masses of sandstone, worn into fantastic shapes by the winter torrents which sweep down from the hills. The people of the country call them the Camels of Nimrod. Tradition says that the rebellious patriarch, endeavoring to build an inaccessible castle, strong enough to defy both God and man, the Almighty, to punish his arrogance, turned the workmen, as they were working, into stone. The rocks on the border of the lake are the camels who, with their burdens, were petrified into a perpetual memorial of the divine vengeance. The unfinished walls of the castle are still to be seen on the top of the mountain, and the surrounding country, the seat of a primeval race, abounds in similar traditions. We left the southern end of the lake, near the Armenian village of Tadwan, once a place of some importance, and soon entered a rugged ravine, worn by the mountain rills, collected into a large stream. This was one of the many headwaters of the Tigris. It was flowing tumultuously to our own bourne, and, as we gazed upon the troubled waters, they seemed to carry us nearer to our journey's end. The ravine was at first wild and rocky. Cultivated spots next appeared, scattered in the dry bed of the torrent. Then a few gigantic trees, gardens, and orchards followed, and at length the narrow valley opened on the long, straggling town of Bitlis. 
The governor here had provided quarters for us in a large house belonging to an Armenian who had been tailor to Badar Khan Bey. My party was now, for the first time during the journey, visited with that curse of eastern travel, fever and og. The doctor was prostrate, and having then no experience of the malady, at once had dreams of typhus and malignant fever. A day's rest was necessary, and our jaded horses needed it as well as we, for there were bad mountain roads and long marches before us. I had a further object in remaining. This was, to obtain indemnity for the robbery committed on some relations of Kual Yusuf two years before. The official order of Rashid Pasha, the governor's intervention, speedily effected the desired arrangement. The governor ordered Kuwasas to accompany me through the town, I had been told that ancient inscriptions existed in the castle or on the rock, but I searched in vain for them. Those pointed out to me were early Mohammedan. Bitlis contains many picturesque remains of mosques, baths, and bridges, and was once a place of considerable size and importance. It is built in the very bottom of a deep valley and on the sides of ravines worn by small tributaries of the Tigris. The export trade is chiefly supplied by the produce of the mountains. Galls, honey, wax, wool, and carpets and stuffs woven and dyed in the tents. The dyes of Kurdistan, and particularly those from the districts around Bitlis, Sirt, and Jazeera, are celebrated for their brilliancy. They are made from herbs gathered in the mountains, and from indigo, yellow berries, and other materials imported into the country. The carpets are of a rich, soft texture, the patterns displaying considerable elegance and taste. They are much esteemed in Turkey. There was a fair show of Manchester goods and coarse English cutlery in the shops. The sale of arms, once extensively carried on, had been prohibited. Having examined the town, I visited the Armenian bishop, who dwells in a large convent in one of the ravines branching off from the main valley. On my way, I passed several hot springs, some gurgling up in the very bed of the torrent. The bishop was maudlin, old and decrepit. He cried over his own personal woes and over those of his community, abused the Turks and the American missionaries, whispering confidentially in my ear as if the Kurds were at his door. He insisted in the most endearing terms, and occasionally throwing his arms round my neck, that I should drink a couple glasses of fiery rocky, although it was still early morning, pledging me himself in each glass. He showed me his church, an ancient building, well hung with miserable daubs of saints and miracles. There are three roads from Bitlis to Jazeera, two over the mountains through Sirt, generally frequented by caravans, but very difficult and precipitous. A third, more circuitous, and winding through the valleys of the eastern branch of the Tigris. I chose the last, as it enabled me to visit the Yazidi villages of the district of Kurzan. We left Bitlis on the 20th. About five miles from Bitlis, the road is carried by a tunnel, about 20 feet in length, through a mass of calcareous rock projecting like a huge rib from the mountain's side. The mineral stream, which in the lapse of ages has formed this deposit, is still at work, projecting great stalactites from its sides and threatening to close ere long the tunnel itself. There is no inscription to record by whom and at what period this passage was cut. We continued during the following day in the same ravine, crossing by ancient bridges the stream, which was gradually gathering strength as it advanced towards the low country. About noon, we passed a large Kurdish village called Goina, belonging to Sheikh Qasim, one of those religious fanatics who are the curse of Kurdistan. He was notorious for his hatred of the Yazidis. On those districts he had committed numerous depredations, murdering those who came within his reach. His last expedition had not proved successful. He was repulsed with the loss of many of his followers. We encamped in the afternoon on the bank of the torrent near a cluster of Kurdish tents concealed from view by brushwood and high reeds. The owners were poor but hospitable. 
bringing us a lamb, yogurt, and milk. Late in the evening, a party of horsemen rode to our encampment. They were a young Kurdish chief, with his retainers, carrying off a girl with whom he had fallen in love. Not an uncommon occurrence in Kurdistan. They dismounted, ate bread, and then hastened on their journey to escape pursuit. Starting next morning, soon after dawn, we rode for two hours along the banks of the stream, and then, turning from the valley, entered a country of low, undulating hills. We halted for a few minutes in the village of Omais el Koran, belonging to one of the innumerable saints of the Kurdish mountains. The sheikh himself was on the terrace superintending the repair of his house, gratuitously undertaken by the neighboring villagers, who came eagerly to engage in a good and pious work. Leaving a small plain, we ascended a low range of hills by a precipitous pathway and halted on the summit at a Kurdish village named Koki. It was filled with Bashi Bozuks, or irregular troops, collecting the revenue, and there was such a general confusion, quarreling of men and screaming of women, that we could scarcely get bread to eat. Yet the officer assured me that the whole sum to be raised amounted to no more than 70 piastres, about 13 shillings. The poverty of the village must indeed have been extreme, or the bad will of the inhabitants outrageous. It was evening before we descended into the plain country of the district of Kurzan. The Yazidi village of Hamki had been visible for some time from the heights, and we turned towards it. As the sun was fast sinking, the peasants were leaving the threshing floor and gathering together their implements of husbandry. They saw the large company of horsemen drawing nigh, and took us for irregular troops. The terror of an eastern village. Kowal Yusuf, concealing all but his eyes with the Arab kifia, which he then wore, rode into the midst of them, and demanded in a peremptory voice provisions and quarters for the night. The poor creatures huddled together, unwilling to grant, yet fearing to refuse. The Kowal, having enjoyed their alarm for a moment, threw his kerchief from his face, exclaiming, O oh, evil ones! Will you refuse bread to your priest, and turn him hungry from your door? There was surely then no unwillingness to receive us. Casting aside their shovels and forks, the men threw themselves upon the kowal, each struggling to kiss his hand. The news spread rapidly, and the rejoicing was so great that the village was alive with merriment and feasting. Yusuf was soon seated in the midst of a circle of the elders. He told his whole history, with such details and illustrations as an Eastern alone can introduce, to bring every fact vividly before his listeners. Nothing was omitted. His arrival at Constantinople, his reception by me, his introduction to the ambassador, his interview with the great ministers of state, the firman of future protection for the Yazidis, prospect of peace and happiness for the tribe, our departure from the capital, the nature of steamboats, the tossing of the waves, the pains of seasickness, and our journey to Kurzan. Not the smallest particular was forgotten, and, when he had finished, it was my turn to be the object of unbounded welcomes and salutations. As the Kual sat on the ground, with his noble features and flowing robes, surrounded by the elders of the village, eager listeners to every word which dropped from their priest, and looking towards him with looks of profound veneration, the picture brought vividly to my mind many scenes described in the sacred volumes. Let the painter who would throw off the conventionalities of the age who would feel as well as portray the incidents of holy writ, wander in the East, and mix, not as the ordinary traveler, but as a student of men and of nature, with its people. He will daily meet with customs, which he will otherwise be at a loss to understand, and be brought face to face with those who have retained with little change the manners, language, and dress of a patriarchal race. End of chapter 2